Hi, welcome again to the Gary Wilkson podcast. We have with us Dr. Sam Storms. I hope you joined us last week. If you didn't, I want to invite you not to leave us here today if you don't want to, but certainly go back and check out last week. We've been doing a series on the attributes of God over the past few months, particularly trying to bring our attention to the attributes not being a low view of God, like just, oh yeah, I know the names of certain attributes, uh, or I have a, a moderate amount of respect for the attributes. Uh, we call that a low view of God, or a low view of God could also be, we have, uh, I hold these six value uh, attributes, value I value these high, I, I value his love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, but I really sort of look down upon his, judgment or his justice or his holiness seems demanding or uh, certainly in this generation uh, a lot of uh, a lot of accusation about God who he is uh, the, the thing about uh, you know God being a, a divine child abuser uh, the wrath of God being uh, put upon his son in, in substitutional atonement and so uh, we want to and so some people can have a low view of God by only uh, only loving and adoring and proclaiming certain attributes and, and, and missing out on some there are other schools that actually uh, they, they just sort of love to talk about uh, the anger of God and the wrath of God and, the, and, and kind of miss on the love. And so we want to combine all these together and combine them in, in a high view. Some people can have a, all the attributes, but, but in low view, and other people only hold some of them. So we're, we're trying to do this. And, and last week, Sam helped us so much, uh, particularly when we talked about the beauty of God. That was amazing and all kinds of great stuff. Uh, Sam, thank you again for being with us. I'd like to just pick up right into the attributes of God. You said last week there was... Um, uh, like uh, multiple, so many, like new, numerous uh, attributes of God. Uh, but just to help our listening audience, can, can you just sort of name what you say some of the standard ones that uh, people might know? Sure. I mean, you you mentioned several of them right there. I mean, people start with love. Um, they talk about God as gracious. He's merciful. Uh, he's kind. He's uh, all powerful. He's all knowing. Uh, the, the idea which boggles our minds because we are so finite and limited in our uh, intellectual capacities, the fact that God literally, not figuratively, literally knows everything that can be known simultaneously, not successively, but simultaneously uh, each moment. It, that's just mind, that's mind blowing. Uh, he's omnipresent. Uh, God is present in the fullness of his divine being everywhere throughout the entire universe. Um, uh, God ha is authoritative. Um, he's majestic. He's holy. Um, obviously just. Um, God is wrathful. Now, that, that that's something I think we probably should talk about because you mentioned it. And you mentioned some of the uh, ways in which people have misunderstood that. Um, there are some today, and this isn't just in our day. This is goes back um, really about the middle of the 20th century, there was a, there was a, a kind of a shift in certain circles uh, of, the, of Christianity in which people basically said, wrath is not a personal attribute of God. Uh, it's, it's kind of beneath his dignity uh, to think of God as being angry and God venting his wrath or his judgment upon sin and sinners. Um, and, and my response to that has always been, well, if God isn't wrathful, I don't want him. I don't, I don't want anything to do with a God who doesn't get mad at sin. I don't want anything to do with a God who is of such a nature that he's not enraged um, at child abuse and um, rape and idolatry and murder and racism and all the other things that we could cite. Um, 
Now, one of the problems people have is when they hear me use that language, say that God can be enraged, they think, well, wait a minute, um, I, I get enraged and I end up doing really bad things as a result. You got to remember God's rage, his wrath, his anger is holy and pure and always uh, spot on accurate. He never misjudges anything or anyone. Um, I think, and then it, so that's important to keep in mind. Also, uh, wrath is, and this may sound strange to some people, wrath is just really the flip side of God's love. Yeah. Why does God hate child abuse? Because he loves children. Why does God hate racism? Because he loves all those whom he has created in his image. Um, God's anger and his judgment against these things that we see in our society and in our own hearts oftentimes is because of God's love and his commitment to the antithesis of each. Um, so, you know, if, if, um, if, if God were not to be angry at the wickedness and the perversion we see so often in our world, our society, would he be really, would he actually be deserving of our praise? Would we really find him um, worthy of our honor and our adoration? I don't think so. Uh, I just can't imagine um, the God that I worship and know, especially as revealed in Scripture, not being a God of wrath. Now, I'm not saying that that's the preeminent, primary, all-consuming attribute in God's heart. No, that's not true. Um, but neither am I going to diminish it and put it to the side and say that we shouldn't think about it or talk about it. Um, obviously, um, you know, you, you even alluded to the fact that uh, some have therefore called substitutionary atonement cosmic child abuse. I will try to restrain my wrath when I hear that language because it makes me angry. Um, there is no gospel apart from penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, if Jesus didn't die in my place and absorb and exhaust in himself the, the wrath of God that I deserve, I have no hope. Furthermore, I have nothing good to say to a lost and dying world. I have no good news for them. It, and, you know, Jesus said it very clearly in John 3. Um, the person who does not obey the Son, who does not embrace the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. The only reason the wrath does not abide on me is because it abided on Jesus in my place on the cross. That's the only hope I have. Um, so that doesn't mean that somehow the father abused the son on the cross. The son went willingly, freely, lovingly, voluntarily to the cross. John 10, I have the authority to lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I give it of my own accord and I can take it back of my own accord. So, um, you know, that people have misconstrued and misunderstood the wrath of God. Yeah. I think this is an interesting thing. People ask me the question, they say, why has there been a reaction against that particular attribute? And I think it's um, wrapped up in a larger shift in the thinking of a lot of people today who have become um, far. And again, I, I don't want you to, I don't want us to get off on this. I'm not going to try, not trying to make a political statement, but it's wrapped up in a little bit more of a political philosophy that's driven by pacifism. This idea that violence of any sort can never accomplish anything of value. Um, now, violence human against human when it's unjustified, obviously is wicked and sinful and provokes God's wrath. 
but sin and idolatry and blasphemy deserves to be violently treated, but it's a holy violence. It's a reaction against that which is contrary to truth and beauty and love and goodness. So I think this reaction against the wrath of God is wrapped up in a larger social cultural phenomenon that we've seen over the last 50 or 60 years. And the idea of this, well, we, we've got to remove all violence from the cross of Christ. Well, you know, when you look at the Old Testament sacrifices that led up, that were kind of prophetic and typological of the cross of Christ, that's pretty violent stuff. Slaughtering a, a lamb and shedding its blood. Uh, these were violent actions taken in order to emphasize to us how serious our sin is and how magnificent and great God and his holiness is. So um, hmm. I, I, don't, I don't make more of God's wrath than the Bible does, but I certainly want to be consistent with the emphasis that we find in Scripture on yeah. holy and just. And I'm so, I'm so glad you went down that lane there because that's I think it's, it's such a timely message for every generation, but I think particularly when there's such a pushback against it to, to advocate for the, the fullness of the gospel truth, and you're, you're doing that so well in the way you're articulating that. You, um, you know, a couple things came to mind there when you're saying that. One, one is that, you know, for, I've been a pastor, uh, I'm not pastor now, but for almost 40 years, I've been in the pastoral ministry, and I used to have this thing, I don't know if you have it or not, but like if you preach on the wrath of God or judgment or, you know, against a particular sin, you always feel like you have to sort of, yeah, wrap it up but I'm a nice guy uh, you know and let's talk for now five minutes about the love of God yeah. I love what you said there because you, what you're saying is the wrath of God is really a, 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 an expression of his love if he didn't have yes. love he wouldn't have, have wrath and, and so you're you don't really need to apologize for <clears throat> speaking uh, and maybe you know putting a period at the end of he is a God of wrath uh, as long as it's understood in, in, the, in the context of his love uh, yeah, let me let me jump off. Can I jump yeah. in and say something about that? Because you got my mind going. Um, not only that, not only is the wrath of God an expression of His love, but my talking about the wrath of God is an expression of my love. You know, we have this idea in our society today that love means saying and doing whatever it takes so you can feel good about yourself, affirming your actions, your behavior, beliefs, uh, regardless of what they are so that you don't feel any kind of shame or rebuke or guilt or a dissatisfaction with your own soul. That, that's the concept of love today. And I would actually say that that is, in fact, many times an expression of hate. Love in Scripture is saying and doing whatever is necessary to bring the greatest benefit both temporally and eternally to another person. In other words, if, if I say something or teach something or relate to you in such a way that I'm bringing you harm both now and in eternity, I'm not loving you. So, for example, um, if, if I articulate from Scripture um, that this kind of behavior, if pursued in an unrepentant way, will lead to your eternal damnation, that's an expression of my love for you. And yet, when I articulate that, many people push back and say, oh, gosh, Sam, you, you're making people feel bad about themselves. Um, you just, you just uh, undermine their sense of self-esteem and their sense of identity of who they are. And I say, well, it may well be that who they think they are and how they're living that out 
is putting their soul in jeopardy of eternal condemnation. And for me to affirm that in them and not warn them of what Scripture says is not loving. The way I love you is to point you in the direction of beliefs and behavior that will bring you the greatest temporal blessing now and eternal bliss in the age to come. That's love. And sometimes that sounds harsh. Sometimes it, it can be offensive. But that's just the that's because we have this warped view of what love is. Yeah. God's love for us is it's the same way. God loves us by doing and revealing to us everything that is essential for our joy now and forevermore. And wow. something that runs directly counter to our own sinful personal preferences and how we want to live. Yeah, but to hear you say that suggests to me that you have been in God's presence and in his word, because what you just said about yourself really describes the attribute of God's, the, the, the bringing together of his wrath and his, his holiness and his justice and his love and his grace and his mercy and his kindness. You expressed that about it. You were saying, this is my heart for people if I don't you know, do this. But what you were saying, that's God's attitude. And so I think it's one of the great things about studying and, and really meditating on the attributes of God is that you, they kind of wear off on you. You become more like God. And that you might want to comment on that. But I did actually want to tie in uh, one other question about, as you were talking about kind of the flip side, love and wrath being that, <clears throat> that goes to maybe could you take a minute to talk about because uh, I don't understand this one really all that well. I've tried to read a little bit about it. Uh, there's two that confuse me. One, and I don't even know how to say it right. Is it aseity of God? Yeah, uh, aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. And the simplicity of God. Simplicity. Uh, but, but were you kind of talking about the simplicity of God in the sense of his wrath and his love and <clears throat> kind of all yeah. the <laughs> I'll try to be simple. <laughs> simplicity <laughs> of God. Basically, it means that God is not composed of parts. In other words, it's not so much that God has love or has grace or has wrath. God is love. God is grace. Um, God is his attributes. So it's not as if uh, you can kind of dissect God and slice him up into, into a variety of attributes um, and say, well, one is, you know, more godlike than another. God is his character. Um, that's the idea behind simplicity. That we is that different than? I'm sorry to interrupt. Is that different than our basic nature? Like we're we're, we're you said God doesn't have parts, but is that different than us as human beings? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, um, God is an indivisible whole who is all these things, all these words that we predicate of Him. You know, and, and we're trying to to. Uh, gain those things we're trying to become loving or we're trying to become yes. holy but you know except for the imputed righteousness but we're uh, the sanctification we're trying where god already is in essence all those things not trying to become right. that or not looking to a higher law to uh, justice or finding justice outside of himself um, he is these things uh, and that's that and we just also say like you know i think most people when they think of the attributes of god as you said uh, last week in the, our verse interview uh, we think of God is love. They, um, they think of God. That's that's core of who He is. Holy. Other things are things He does. But in the simplicity, you're saying He is as much um, just as He is love. Or does He have more? Is He weighted in certain ways? Sure. You, in other words, it's it's saying you can't play off one attribute of God against another. Okay. It's not like one trumps the other, or one is more preeminent than the other. Um, you know, many theologians would say, and I tend to agree with them, is that um, 
that holiness is simply the the reality of all of God and all of what he is and all of his attributes collectively seen. Um, that's who that's what it means for him to be holy, utterly different from and transcendent beyond us. But yeah, it's um, you know, it's not and, and again, the, the whole concept of simplicity is important in the sense that God doesn't grow. In other words, God is not going to have more love for you tomorrow than he has today. Now, there may be ways in which that love is revealed and ways in which we come to experience it that are greater tomorrow than, than today. But God doesn't become more loving when you become more obedient. Or God doesn't become more uh, just when you become less obedient. Um, so he is who he is eternally, indivisibly, simultaneously. You know, being that he's infinite, he, he's not becoming more of anything. He's not learning anything. I've heard uh, people talk about that, that he doesn't learn right. anything. He's, he's, you know, he's all knowing. I'll give you a, a comment on that. Um, uh, my friend Jack Taylor, who's been in ministry for probably 50, 60 years, once said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? <laughs> Uh, wait, wait, okay, slow down. Let me, let me parse that out a little bit. And I, and suddenly it occurred to me, that's right. God doesn't ever go, didn't see that coming. All right. Wow. Not, didn't see the implications of this or, you know, you know, that's a surprise. You know, nothing ever occurs to God because he knows all things simultaneously at all times. So uh, that that's just marvelous when you think about God in that way. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I've tried to tell him there's some things he doesn't know that he needs to know about me and my problems. Uh, but it certainly helps in our prayer life. I think when we do understand that he, he already knows he's, we're not going to surprise yeah, him. I'm, gonna... I'm turning to a text. I, I, and I know the people listening to this know it, but if there's one text that you need to immerse yourself in, it's, it's the doxology at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. So, you know, we try to, we try to decipher God. We try to, you know, that right now, um, I don't know when people will be viewing this podcast, but, uh, you know, in the midst of this COVID pandemic, um, you know, and people are saying, what is God up to in this? You know, what is he, what, what is he, is he behind it? Is Satan behind it? Did he cause it? Did he permit it? You know, is, and, and, you know, I finally just have to say to folks, God's judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable. I know that there's nothing outside of his sovereign sway. Nothing occurs apart either from his positive decree or his permission. I don't understand that. I don't know how he works that. I don't know how he orchestrates good and his glory and our blessing from it. But that's what Paul is telling me. And then he asked these rhetorical questions for who has known the mind of the Lord. And then this, or who has been his counselor? You know, cause like you said, a lot of times I want to say, God, can I just give you a little bit of advice on how to run things? Yeah. Um, I think there might be a better way of going about it than you have in, in, up until now. And it, it's so arrogant and so insulting to God who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. And then there's this incredible concluding statement that you, know, you talk about the attributes of God. They're almost contained right here. From him are all things. He's the creator. He, everything exists from him. Through him are all things. In other words, 
everything continues to exist because God's exertion of his divine power holds everything in being. And to him are all things in some mysterious, unsearchable, inscrutable way, everything will redound to the glory of God. And on that day, when we finally stand in his presence and throughout all eternity, we'll, we'll, we'll see it. And we'll say, wow, Lord, how, how un unbelievably glorious it is that it all worked for your glory. It's from you, it's through you, it's to you. And again, the pushback comes. Oh, but Sam, how? What possible, what possible benefit is, is there in a pandemic? I say, I don't know. Uh, God's judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. But I know that everything comes from him. Everything exists through him. And everything is ultimately for him and his glory. So that doxology at the end of Romans 11, you know, if people feel like, you know, they're, their brains are about to explode when they think about all these truths about God. Just come back to that passage. And remember who wrote it. This is Paul after the first 11 chapters of Romans, in which we find these incredible things about God, his grace, his mercy, his wrath. He talks about wrath in, in Romans 1. Um, his grace in, in Romans uh, 3, 4, and 5. Uh, the work of the Spirit in chapter 8. His, his uh, sovereign grace in chapters 9 and 10. And, and Paul's, it's almost like Paul just stops and says, you know, I, I think Trophimus is Emmanuel. Trophimus is taking down Paul's language as he's, as he's speaking. And he just says, let's put this on pause for a moment. My mind circuit to blow here. And Paul just explodes in this, this volcanic eruption of praise and doxology. Mm. And really what, studying the attributes of God is designed to ultimately accomplish, to bring us to that point where we just fall on our face in amazement, adoration, even a, a great measure of ignorance and say, oh Lord, you are so far above my capacity to, to decipher you. Forgive me for bringing judgment against you and thinking that I could have made it work better than you have. Um, I know that's the temptation of the human heart. I feel it all the time. And I have to just subdue my own soul and say, shut up, Sam. Uh, you're not God. He is. <laughs> wow. Well, that's, 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 that's powerful. Uh, two things come to mind. One is, you know, you're talking about, and, and uh, I'm so glad, so glad you brought that scripture to bear. We, we, we can't know the judgments of God. And, and I'm not saying, but, or, and, you know, however, uh, there, there, there is, you know, I, I think you're, I, if I'm not mistaken, you're on the board of uh, uh, desiring God. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I was for six years, and, and uh, according to the bylaws, after two terms, we have to rotate off. So I've rotated off for 2020. There's a likelihood I'll come back on in 2021 if they want me. Thank yeah, I've been serving with John for, uh, for many years. He's a dear friend, and Desiring God Ministries is an incredible ministry. Thank you for serving on that. It's been a, such a profound help to so many people. The reason I brought that up is there's uh, on that website, there's an article by, I think it's by J.C. Ryle, and he was talking about... Uh, some of the things that were taking place. There was like a flood. I don't know if you ever heard that story. There was a flood in England uh, and like 48,000 homes were, and, and there was a, uh, a bishop there that uh, sort of wrote, wrote something in the Sunday Telegram of, in London saying like, God is trying to awaken his people. He's trying to, to tell us like, you know, turn from our folly and our sin. And you know, he just got lambasted in the press by like, even other clergymen were saying, you know, that. And so, so sometimes I think the, uh, you know, I, I just want to bring that point up about, I know you and I probably both believe the same thing that uh, desiring God um, seems proposed, propound 
as well as that that you know god i'm not saying you know with you i'm not saying i don't have the mind of christ what COVID is or what's happening even now with the stuff that's happening and the protests and the right the things happening in our in our urban areas and the cities not even urban i live in colorado springs and there's protests here uh, this week as well uh, we can't know I, I man that's so profound that uh you know, Romans 11, we can't know the judgments of God, and yet we can't know he judges. And I, I think that's one of the points I was going to make. He, he does bring, that's one of his attributes. Is I think some people think that he used to judge. You know, we read the Old Testament, he was a judge, and then he's going to judge again. We read the book of Revelation, and that there's no judgment of God uh, at all today. And I know you're not saying that, but at the same time, that that, that is one of his that's one of his attributes. Uh, sure. And another one that uh, that kind of ties into all this is the is providence. God is providential. Hmm. He oversees and orchestrates in mysterious ways uh, everything. I mean, uh, everybody knows uh, probably the second most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, is Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Um, and it's interesting, when, when people wrench that verse out of its context, don't do that. Go back and read uh, the ten verses preceding and the five or six verses that follow it. And he's ta- primarily talking about suffering. In, in the context, when he says all things, uh, because those are the things that we can't figure out. How's there, how there's, how's there any benefit to this? How's there any blessing in it? And yet Paul is asserting that God's providential orchestration of our lives um, is always for our best, our good, and his glory. So providence is another, you know, I, I'm not real sure if, I, if that's an attribute per se, or is it an expression of his power and his glory? But I don't think it really matters. But one of the things that I, that I tell people when they want to ask questions about, you know, why was there a tsunami in Japan that, that killed so many tens of thousands of people? And why is there an earthquake in this, in, in this part of the world? And why is there a pandemic? And my response to them is, look, we need to be very careful when we try to interpret divine providence. If we, unless we have uh, biblical statements that explicitly tell us what God is up to in these various kinds of things, we need to be careful in trying to interpret the meaning of providence. Um, I do believe there is meaning in it, but God in his wisdom has chosen not to disclose that to us. Um, and we need to, we need to, sometimes we just need to s- submit and subdue our souls and, and say, all right, Lord. Like I said, you're God and I'm not. Yeah, yeah, and and the providence of God is goes back to the his like you said earlier about how he knows everything. So we, uh, so his providence is going to be good. It goes to the goodness of God, his nature, uh, his attribute of, of his goodness. Can I can I just comment on one thing and have, have you uh, give some feedback on this? Uh, you were you were you were taking us to Romans 11 there, that wonderful scripture, um, and then then in 12, you know, and as we know there. The, you know, Paul didn't write with uh, chapters or verses, numbers in there. So, so he's continuing his same thought, and he goes, and I, I appeal to you, uh, this is 12.1, uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Uh, and, and it goes into some, some text there, but, but, the, but the, the, the shift in thinking in Paul's mind here is, since you understand this nature and character of God, therefore, I appeal to you. So I was wondering if you'd take a few moments to comment on uh, how the attributes of God, so we know this providence of God and the beauty of God, the love of God. Uh, therefore, brothers, uh, what would you say to that? How would you fill in the blank there? Um, 
how does it affect our life? What, what uh, meaning and purpose do these attributes serve in our life? Or are they just sort of doctrines for us theologians to, I don't know if I'm a theologian, but for a theologian like you to, uh, to, to study and to talk about, or do, uh, do they have some real practical daily uh, transformational things in our life? Well, yeah, massively so. Um, you gave a perfect example of how the first 11 chapters of Rome, Romans transitions into, the, into chapter 12 and the therefore. Even, I think an even more explicit example of this that people can look at is in Ephesians. Uh, at the end of Ephesians 3, you know, Paul's been talking about the unsearchable riches of Christ and uh, just the, the incredible work of God in, in redeeming us for his own glory. And then at the end of three, there's what I think is the greatest prayer in the Bible. It's just my opinion, uh, where he talks about being strengthened with power through his spirit so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, that we might know what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then again, this doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations. And then, as you say, the very next verse, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So here, here's Paul moving from these lofty heights of a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond everything I can think or imagine. He does it according to the power of the Spirit at work in me and through Christ in, in the church. Therefore, here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to be at peace with one another. Here's how I want you to humble yourselves. Here's how I want you to uh, bear one, one another in, in patience. Here's how I want you to maintain a gentle attitude and the, the bond of the spirit in peace. Um, and he just goes on, obviously, in the last three chapters of Ephesians to give all these moral, ethical exhortations about don't steal, don't lie, um, you know, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because this is the God who has done such incredibly marvelous things for you in Jesus and forgiving you. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Um, so, yes, if, if we ever study, think, write, pray about the attributes of God, and we don't then respond by God's grace in obedience to the revelation of his commandments and his wills, then we we've distorted it. We, it will, uh, it will, this is what unfortunately leads to kind of an arrogant pharisaical mindset in the, in so many, I hate to say it in so many Christians and leaders and churches is that, well, I understand who God is better than you do. Let me define this attribute. Can you define that attribute? And, and we kind of, it's a one upmanship and who can outdo the other in our theological precision all the while that person is living in the, in the bondage to lust and is um, uh, abusing them, verbally abusing their children or is uh, walking in arrogance. I mean, the knowledge of God, the study of his attributes is always to be transformative. It has to change what we value, how we speak, what we do with our money, how we treat our bodies, how we interact with others. And if it doesn't, God would say, what good is it for you to know what I'm like if it doesn't change what you're like? So that's what these therefore texts, I love them. You know, I always tell my people, 
always ask the question, what is therefore there for? Yeah. What is its purpose? What is it telling us to do and how we should react? And uh, the Romans from 11 to 12, Ephesians from three to four, and so many others um, are designed to do that very thing. Yeah, and then knowing the attributes of God give us the impetus and the power to, uh, once you get those imperatives in scripture, you have the indictives that have already told you sort of what God's right. like. And so I was, I was re I'm reading uh, Devoted to God by Alistair Begg. Uh, I've never met him, but uh, I love his message. And uh, he, he, he did something incredibly said, read, read uh, Romans 1 through 11 um, with a pen and mark down every time you get a, 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 a the the, uh, the the indicative of God uh, just the uh, and so the statement of fact of what God has done for you right yeah, statement of fact what God's done for you and he said uh, there's uh, write down then all the all the imperatives what things you have to do for God and he said uh, there's 311 verses from Romans one through eleven and uh, 308 of them have nothing to do they're all what God's done for you only three of them have to do what you do for God then Romans twelve that's, he brings that therefore in, and uh, you know I think it's important we don't get that backwards where we just you know kind of get right. stuck in Romans twelve and or the other. Yeah, the, let me let me just address that real quickly. Yeah, uh, a real threat and a danger people need to avoid is the idea that if they obey the imperatives in Ephesians four through six and Romans twelve through sixteen, that that will change the indicative. In other words, if I do these things, then God will love me. If I do these things, then I'll be the recipient of His grace. And it's, that's just the opposite, the indicative, what God has accomplished, what he is for us in Jesus. That's the ground and the in, in energy on which we pursue the imperatives and obey his commands. And if we get backwards, we've utterly distorted the gospel. Yeah, that's that's probably where legalism comes in, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I was, <clears throat> Tozer has a great quote. Let me just you know, might take a few seconds to share this with us. Um, what bearing does this have on my life? He, he may ask, speaking of almost like going back to last week's conversation about the student, the young the woman stood up in your class and said, is it about me? Uh, Tozer asked the same question. What is this bearing? Speaking of the attributes of God, what bearing does this have on my life? What possible meaning can the self-existence of God have for me and others like me in a world such as this and in times such as these? It's a great question that when you're talking about COVID and, and uh, uh, protest on the streets. Uh, to this, I reply that we are the handiwork of God, and it follows that all our problems and, our, and their solutions are theological. Some knowledge of God and what he is like uh, and how he operates the universe is indispensable to a sound philosophy of life and a sane outlook on the world scene. Uh, to me, that's, that's, that, that, that kind of adds to, to a little bit of what you're saying. I, I, you said it better than I did, but I, I really like the idea of uh, these things are really practical, and, and they are they really help us in our life. And they're not just for people that devote themselves to study theology day in and day out or preachers or uh, teachers. My, my last question for you, Sam, th and thanks for your patience with us. Uh, I'm really enjoy enjoying this, man. I just, I could just do this all day. <laughs> uh, I love your heart and your mind. Um, but my last question for you is, could you give a little bit of advice to help uh, preachers? Um, what would you suggest to them on this topic of attributes of God? Do you suggest sure. a sermon series on it? I know you probably uh, preach expository uh, sermons mostly. I, I don't, I'm not sure, but uh, uh, how, how would you bring this to your congregation? Sure. Well, um, yeah, I do preach expositionally, verse by verse through books of the Bible. In fact, I'm wrapping up the Gospel of John right now, and I'm actually going to start Romans in about a month or two. 
um, which will probably take me a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Through it. Um, I, I did teach, um, a, I did a 32 week uh, series called Foundations, and I did, um, um, I think, eight of them on the attributes of God, which I took each attribute or the primary ones and just unpacked them. In fact, People can um, access all of this at, at the church website, bridgewaychurch.com, and click on resources, and you'll see where it says foundations. And they, it's basically a, an entire course in theology in 32 weeks. Uh, all of it's on video, um, and uh, the notes associated with it are available as well. But I, I think what I would say to pastors is you are going to feel the temptation to tickle the ears of your people in order to keep them in the seats. And that is a, that is a very dangerous thing because a, a lot of Christians, I, I don't know if I want to say most, maybe it is most, um, they, want, they want sin management sermons. They want coping skill sermons. And if you try to give people coping skills, how to get along with your boss, how to treat your kids, which obviously those are wonderful. We need coping skills. But if you try to do that without laying a foundation first in who God is and how he uh, is um, present in your life and the things that he's done for you through Jesus, uh, all you'll just, you'll just create a bunch of, uh, of robotic, um, Oh, life is, can be reduced to five steps or 10 formulas or seven sayings. Mm -hmm. it, it, it won't transform the inner being. You'll just be this person who's trying to, to live a life externally uh, to meet the expectations of everybody around you. But the, talking about who God is, first and fundamentally, laying that foundation in people's lives changes who they are. They see themselves in the light of who God is. They understand the magnificence of his grace, of his mercy, of his kindness. And that's the way we are enabled to cope and to manage and put sin to death. But if we, if we move, you know, for example, if, if a pastor says, you know, I, I think I'd like to preach the book of Ephesians. I'm going to start with chapter four. If I want to preach Romans. I'm going to start with chapter 12. I don't want to deal with all of these deep theological things in the, in the earlier chapters. That, that's a recipe for disaster uh, because all it will do is create people who think that the essence of Christian living is, you know, I, tick, I checked off the box on six things I'm supposed to do, but my heart isn't transformed. My external behavior may be, but who I am, the source of that behavior remains just as corrupt, just as immature, just as unformed uh, as it was before. We have to, we have to take who God is and what he has done and let the spirit of God uh, recreate and renew constantly and bringing us into conformity to who Jesus is. And out of that flows the practical concrete behavior and the ability to cope in life with all the challenges we face every day. So, uh, boy, I would just say to pastors, don't, don't jump to chapter 12 or chapter four in these books or any of the others. Uh, teach the whole counsel of God, as Paul says in, in Acts chapter 20, because that's what will bring about the transformation we need to see. Mm. Uh, thank you. That, I think that's going to help a lot of pastors. Uh, uh, we get a lot of uh, comments and feedback from pastors at our ministry, and so thanks for addressing that issue right to, to pastors. I, you know, I always want to encourage pastors to, you know, to, to um, 
kind of the combination of word and spirit, you know, not just, uh, you know, the, the word being alive and vibrant, and that's the, you know, and, and teaching the word, not our thoughts on the word, uh, and yet having the spirit of God to enliven those things. And I always go to Isaiah 6, you know, when Isaiah, he was already preaching, he was already prophesying, and then he says, I saw the Lord, he was high and lifted right. up, and he still needed his mouth touched with the coals. And so uh, I know I, I feel so inadequate when I preach, uh, just like, like I'm just saying, Lord, touch my lips, man. They're just the, the coals not it hasn't touched. It's not hot enough or whatever it is. I don't know the right words to say. Uh, but I know, you know, when I combine my understanding of, of his word with with that revelation that comes to my heart in the spirit of, uh, of, of uh, you know, I, I see him. And that's that's what to me, the attributes of God. And that's why pastors, I think, yeah. in their time alone with God, in their study, if they'll get a hold of God and say, God, I, I don't know if I know you. And every time I get, I learn something new about God, like how beautiful he is as you're talking to us. I, I, you know, I kind of want to go back. God, I don't even know you. It's like, I'm just like a puppy. Uh, just, I don't right. know how to do things. And so, uh, but as we get that, uh, you know, I was, I was looking at some of the language there and that uh, I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up and the, and the train of his robe. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm correct. You probably know languages better than I do, but, uh, it, it seemed to suggest that the train was the same Hebrew word as, as hem, like in the New Testament, the hem of his garment. Mm. And it changed that whole picture of it for me. It's like uh, the, the, just the hem filled, filled the temple, not, not, right. not even his whole robe, you know, just, just and, and so he saw, that's all he saw is a hem of his garment. And yet he's, he's woe is him undone. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the power of, of really studying the attributes of God, not just uh, intellectually, but, but, but right. from the heart. Yeah, I would, I would just also say, not just to pastors, but to average Christian, a, a wonderful place, it might surprise them to hear this, <clears throat> to learn the character and the attributes of God is in the book of Job. It started in chapter 38. After all of the speeches and all the attempts to explain his suffering, God shows up and he makes no apologies. He doesn't give any explanations. He doesn't say, Job, you asked a lot of good questions. Let me, let me give you some answers. He basically says, sit down and look at who I am. Look at what I do. And basically, at the end of it, Job put my hand on my mouth. I, I, I can't believe that I thought that I had you figured out and I could reduce you to a formula. Right. It's, a, it's a wonderful portrait of the greatness of God at the end of those last few chapters of Job. It sure is. I, I, that, you probably don't hear that very often, uh, recommending Job to study that, but, yeah. but I love it. That's, that, that really could do something. We, we've been doing that as a staff, and I shared with them in you know, Job 35, Bildad is trying to help Job along by telling him a little bit of the attributes of God, and then Job in 36 just floors him by saying, wait, you know, wait a minute, do you think that's, God's that small? And he just starts talking about God in the oceans, and God right. in the seas, and God over the, over the fish. And then, then at the end of, I think it's the end of 36, he just says, you know, we're just touching the outskirts of his power. Right. So I, I agree with you. Joe, Joe would be uh, a, fun, a good place. Uh, in the, in the uh, notes uh, on our podcast, we have, uh, we're, we'll put your, we'll put your website there so people can get in touch with your materials and your books. Of course, on Amazon as well, you can uh, type in Dr. Sam Storms and, and get uh, some of the great resources of, of your books as well. And, and I highly recommend it, particularly if this, uh, these past few months, uh, as we've been talking about the attribute, attributes of God have, have uh, sort of stirred your heart to any degree, then I would encourage you to, to, to look at uh, Dr. Storms' ministry because it, it will really help you get further. I know it has me. It'll help you get further along. And today is really, and last week has really helped me a lot. I'm, I'm so grateful. Uh, if no one else gets anything from this, 
I, I, there, there's new light in my heart and my mind uh, from some of the things you shared. And uh, uh, I won't ask you now, I'll ask you later, but if you'll come back on, because <laughs> I'd hate for you to have to say no uh, publicly. So, <laughs> but uh, we'd love to have you back on and uh, uh, share some more with us. So, so we're so grateful. Sure. Oh, thank you. Well, you answered my question. There you go. Uh, but if, yeah, if you want to uh, subscribe to our podcast, Gary Wilkerson podcast, feel free to to do so. And uh, if you have any questions for us as we continue the series over the next few months uh, on the attributes of God, if you have any questions, please feel free to write us. Or if you'd like to uh, receive some prayer, it's uh, pray.worldchallenge.org. We have a prayer team available for you. Love for you to give us a call, particularly as, you know, as, as Sam and I have talked about the COVID and some of the uh, crisis that's going on with the uh, uh, unjust racism that's taking place and the protest and the support that our African-American brothers and sisters need on the streets. Uh, if, if, if you're one of my African-American brothers and sisters and need, need some prayer, uh, call us as well. We have a racially intermixed staff and uh, not that that affects our prayer. I don't think any differently. God uh, uh, sees us all as uh, one new man, but uh, feel free to give us a call. Sam, thank you so much. I just, well, I love your heart and uh, and the, the, the skill at which God's given you to be able to share things. It's, uh, I'm just uh, really honored that you've been on our podcast. I'm glad to do it. The Gary Wilkerson Podcast is brought to you by World Challenge, transforming lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ. Each week, this podcast reaches thousands of listeners. This critical work is made possible by the generous contributions of individuals like you who believe in World Challenge's mission. Thank you for listening and supporting.